0: I was really on that beat. There's so many stories about that, those days, because it was a sequence that we shot over a period of a couple of weeks. And um, the line I love to say is, so you go into the office on a Monday and the the note on your desk is recreate the D-Day invasion.
1: Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies, My name is Mike Battle, a film production junior working for studios in London. Each episode I bring you advice and stories from film, TV and content professionals to help demystify and democratize the industries for juniors and fans alike. Thanks for joining me, let's get started. Today's guest is PGA award winner and general producing powerhouse Bonnie Curtis. After grafting in junior roles, Bonnie was soon noticed by a certain Steven Spielberg to whom she became the assistant, working together on Jurassic Park, Shinner's List and many more. As their relationship developed, Bonnie rose up the ranks to become Steven's producer, collaborating on Saving Private Ryan and Minority Report, to name just a few. Following her studio successes, Bonnie made the decision to change path and pursue independent film, working with the wonderful Julie Lynn at Mockingbird Pictures on titles such as Netflix's To The Bone. I have no idea how we're going to fit all that into 40 minutes, and I don't know if we're going to make it. But Welcome Bonnie, it's amazing to have you.
0: Hi Mike, thank you for having me.
1: So to start us off I always love to ask my guests what did your parents do and did this affect your decision for your career later on in life?
0: Uh, my father, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. My father uh, was an accountant, uh, a certified public accountant. He worked for um, several different companies during my time at home Um the The main job being at a company called Mark, which was a marketing research firm that he was the financial vice president for. So he was a very conservative, uh, logical, uh, sweet, dear man and still living who uh, who was using the adding machine and the and the calculator a lot because, you know, and he would do the books at the church. And, you know, he was he was the accountant. My mom was a homemaker and blissful about it. So, uh, and she was a a super mom, Um, you know, the mom that was making dinner every night, you know, handled all the laundry, the ironing, you know, uh, we were expected to make good grades and keep our room clean, that was it. It took me a while in my adult life to realize I needed to do a little bit more than that. Um but wait what was the second part of the question you said
1: did that affect your choices for your career were they maybe artistic in their spare time or something
0: well it the way they affected the choice in my career is they basically said we will support anything you want to do you know they were very um they were incredibly great for both my brother and me, because my brother is very successful in the advertising business. We knew that whatever we were passionate about, mom and dad were going to support that effort. And I knew from the time I was 10 years old that I wanted to work in film. And, uh, and mom and dad just, that's what we talked about, you know, well, are you going to move to New York or are you going to move to Los Angeles? You know, where where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Okay, well, let me introduce you to this guy. And, I, my dad, you know, would try to help me get summer jobs in Dallas that were associated with entertainment and film. You know, he would pick up the phone and call people he knew that worked at, you know, a production company or at a, a stu- There was a, a studio called um, Las Colinas, Las Colinas Studios in Dallas, where they filmed Kiss of the Spider Woman and um, Trip to Bountiful. And he, uh, they had stages and he called and, you know, hooked me up with a guy down there. Like they, uh, and there was a moment where they thought Dallas, Texas was going to be the third coast. And it actually ended up being Austin, but that got my parents excited. Like, you know, maybe she won't leave home. Maybe there'll be a film career here, but there was never another career path even entertained or or contemplated for me. It was always going to be film.
1: So you've packed your bags, you've got your suitcase, and you're off to La La Land. How did you get your first job off the ground?
0: I slept on my brother's couch. He was going to... My brother got a business degree, sort of following my father's footsteps. But my brother's an incredibly talented artist. And he just born with it, and he um, wanted to get on the creative side of advertising. He was doing account work, and he hated it. And so he wanted to go back to art school to get a portfolio. And my dad said, "I will. I'll do that for you. I'll pay for any schooling you and Bonnie ever want to do. I'll pay for." Which I I've been reminding myself of that during this pandemic. Maybe I should just go back to school and make dad pay for it. But uh, my brother was at art center in Pasadena, which is a very respected. Uh, art school. So he was living out here, which made coming to LA the obvious path. You know, go out, share an apartment with my brother, try to get myself that first job. And I um I started making phone calls. Um I knew I knew one person, my my dear friend from Dallas, Jeff Nipp, and he knew he was working as an office manager at Imagine Entertainment, Ron Howard's company. And Jeff knew a woman that worked in product placement at Disney. He knew a woman who had worked on and off at a company called Amblin Entertainment. Um, And I was a huge Jane Fonda fan. And so I Fonda, I don't think Jane Fonda ever had like a company of like a bunch of employees, but she definitely pursued projects as a producer and she had Fonda films and I had their phone number and I wrote a letter and I, you know, called and I never got any response back I there was I just don't think it was an organized effort I think it was just a label and um I and I wrote a letter to human resources sent my resume to Amblin I got a lovely rejection letter this is 1988 um and then I went my friend Jeff got me an interview with this woman at Disney and I went and met her and I did the the interesting thing um The interesting thing for me is, uh, and this is, I think, just more of who I am. I I think the information was probably available to me if I had known where to get it. I didn't really know what making movies was. You know, I I knew I wanted to be involved in it. And I had snuck on a couple of sets in Dallas. I had watched the Academy Awards. Like, that was my Super Bowl every year. When I realized that there were actually that there was actually a job associated with movies. Oh, people do this for a job? Because we're going for entertainment, right? Like I hadn't, once I connected the dots, I was like, well, that's what I want to do. And so I came out of here and I sort of went on an informational journey. um, And I realized there were a lot of different paths and a lot of different departments on every movie. And, you know, what did I want to be in? wardrobe or sound or props or art department or, you know, camera or the AD, the AD thing was attractive to me because of the organizing and the planning. And, but I end up with this one connection I have in the product placement department. And I'd start telling her, knowing me probably very similar to what I'm saying to you. I have no idea what I want to do. I just want to be around it. So, I can figure out what I want to do. But I do know that I'll do anything. Like, I'll get people's lunches. I'll sweep the floors. You don't even have to pay me. You know, and I had parents that were telling me to say those words in an interview like, you don't have to pay me. Like, because they knew who I was. So, I. So she says, you know, Bonnie, it sounds to me like you want to be involved. You want to be involved in physically making these movies. That sounds like where you want to go. Let me walk you across the street to these ladies that, that work in physical production. So I went across the street and I met Sharon Dean and Susie Fellows, who I know to this day. And it was two weeks later after I pursued daily by fax and phone. Two weeks later, Sharon called me to come in and answer their phones on the front desk, just reception temp gig for two weeks. When I was doing that, you know, and I'm from Dallas, I don't even know my way around LA. It probably takes me six hours to do something that it would take a local one hour to do. And I, and I remember spending a lot of time at the coffee machine and a lot of time in the kitchen organizing, you know, the grocery run and getting people's lunches. And I and, and distributing call sheets because we didn't have email, distributing call sheets, distributing production reports, distributing information around the lot, really learning people's names, learning the lot, looking at the papers I'm distributing, like, what the heck does this mean, and um, being on a movie lot, and within those two weeks, I got a phone call from a production executive who worked in the next trailer, a man named Sam Mercer. Um, who went on to have an amazing career. And, uh, Sam had a woman working for him, Lisa Needenthal, And Lisa gave me my first job in the business, my first full-time gig as their staff assistant. I'm convinced it's because we discovered we're both Cincinnati Reds fans. Baseball for you, Brit.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: And, uh, and I worked for them for a year and a half. And uh, that was the first job. And it was all about, you know, a, a script would come into the studio to the creative division at the studio and they would send it over to our department to say, OK, tell us what the budget, what what, what would we need to, to spend to make this movie? And we would break down the schedule and we would, you know, budget the film and send that back to them. And OK, well, we can afford to do that. Let's do that. And, oh, no, this one's too expensive. And then when they would decide to make a movie, they would access us to... Who do they want to hire in, as their department heads? One of the first projects I had that was solely mine, my boss just handed it to me, was there was the movie Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams.
1: I think a few people have heard of that.
0: Yeah. And Peter Weir, Robin is a through line through my entire career, but Peter Weir directed it and he and his editorial staff, they, they want, the studio wanted them to come to Los Angeles to cut the movie. And none of them had visas. And uh, Sam came up to me and he was like, we have to get these people visas in like two weeks. And I had traveled a lot. You know, I had backpacked through Europe. I had been to 68, you know, 16 countries and 68 cities and crossed the Hungarian border without a visa. (laughs) But I found a very helpful cab driver who took me to the embassy and we got it handled. But I had, re- I had been traveling was not, didn't make me nervous. And, um, and I just got in my car and drove down to the Australian embassy and found a woman who helped me make it all happen. And within a matter of days, they, we had them on a plane on their way over. And um, I just, I, I think about that instance quite a bit. And I tell young people that story quite a bit because it just, yeah, going in person is, even in the age of the internet getting in your car and going in person can get it done. Even more so, by the way.
1: So you started doing your hard graft, you're doing your lunches, doing your coffees, and you've had, incidentally, a, a rejection from Amblin. How is it that you come through the door to Stephen? I believe it was it through a connection on arachnophobia with Marshall and K- Kathleen Kennedy? Well,
0: no, that they um, it was during that time. Frank Marshall and Kathy Kennedy were... were inching out of Amblin because Frank wanted to direct and Kathy wanted to support her husband and, um, who was Frank and is Frank. And I think also, you know, it just, um, they have been doing the 24 seven, you know, gig. Cause I mean, Steven is an industry unto himself, an incredible human being. I adore him, but I mean, it's a full-time gig that he does like effortlessly <laughs> but you're like trying to keep up. (laughs) Yeah. But I I was working at Amblin. I mean, oh, there's the Freudian slip. I was working at Disney. They had formed a new division called Hollywood Pictures. My boss, Sam Mercer, was promoted to run production at Hollywood Pictures. It was a big deal. It was an exciting moment. And Lisa, the coordinator that had hired me that worked for Sam, we were sort of a team of three, Lisa had gotten a job at Showtime, so she had left, and so Sam promoted me to work with him at Hollywood Pictures. Really exciting moment. Now Disney notoriously does not pay well, and so it meant like a five cent raise for me. But that didn't. I loved Sam, and it it was a really. I was going to be given a lot more responsibility, and I was really excited about it. So. About, I don't even think I had been doing the new job for two months when I get this phone call from, you no, know, that's not true, that's not true. I had been doing the job for about six months and I had been sitting next to a woman named Kathleen Miranda who was helping in post production for Hollywood Pictures, but we were a new division, so we were all crammed side by side in the trailer. And um, we'd gotten close, we'd gotten to know each other. And she had worked on and off at Amblin for many, many years for Steven, never in the hot seat, as we call it, but as the second assistant. And so she called me one day, they had moved to another building on the lot, but she called me and said, now, Steven Spielberg has called me and he's looking for a new assistant. And I wondered if you might be interested in the job. And I said, Kathleen, I can't, Sam just promoted me like a few months ago. I can't leave him. That would just be, that's just not right. And she said, "Um, okay, you know, I, I think that's great. You know, hangs up. So a guy I'm working with comes walking. He's out in the hallway and he's heard the conversation. He comes in and he said, who, what was that about? Well, Steven Spielberg's looking for a new assistant. And you said, no. And I'm like, well, I, like, you know, Sam and and he's like, Bonnie, no one is going to begrudge you that opportunity. It just fell in your lap. Like you have to listen to that. I know you well enough to know you believe in that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I mean, by the way, what a good friend, right? Like literally like just a defining moment in my life. So I said, Okay, so I called Kathleen back and I said, "Okay, Jim Jim Limley is his name." I'm like Jim has me thinking. I you know I should oh I should be open to this opportunity because it's thank you by the way for thinking of me and I would I would love to meet him. Great, great. So I go and I meet Kathy Kennedy first, Um, and I loved her immediately. I just could have hung out with her all day. I, I literally, I remember, I even remember what she was wearing. Like I, I, you know, and that's rare for me. Some people remember that stuff. I usually don't. But, um, but met her, had a great time. And she, they called me like the next day or what they offered me the job. And I said, well, aren't I going to meet Steven? And they said, well, that's not really, that's not really how we do things around here. And I said, "Well, which I totally get by the way, great. He's Steven Spielberg, but I said, you know, I I can't work for a man I haven't met." And, and by the way, he shouldn't want to hire me. That's just what if I remind him of some girl that broke his heart in high school, you know? I'm <laughs> I'm doomed from I walk through the door doomed. Or what if I don't and apparently I did say this which was a common phrase used in my family. I said, what if I don't like the way he smells? I mean, because <laughs> think about that. That would be a bad day at the office. Yeah. So they laughed, hung up, called me back half hour later and said, okay, you're going to meet him on the arachnophobia set. This is where you're connecting. And, you know, that'll be um, next whatever day it was. So I lied and said I had a dentist appointment. And I went and met Stephen, and he was lovely. And, you know, and I'm not joking when I say we, most of the interview, we talked about Kate Capshaw because they, you know, he had divorced Amy. He and Kate were pregnant, going to have a baby soon. You know, she had moved into his home and I was such a huge Kate Capshaw fan. I just loved everything the woman had ever done, including some of her independent films. I could quote from them like this was real stuff. And I did it during the interview. Like, I was like, so what's Kate like? And, you know, this, this, and he's like, oh my gosh, you're a huge fan. And I'm like, no, I really am. And so we get to the end of the interview and, and I don't even, I'm not even sure I asked him one question about himself and he just laughed and he, and he told, he told me several times, he's like, I hired you because of how much you loved Kate. Like it, it was one of the most wonderful, like just great. Come on, let's do it. So I started working for him two weeks later. My former boss at Disney has called me Benedict Arnold to this day, but didn't begrudge me. It was, it was very excited for me. And then that started a 15 year, 15 year journey.
1: This is a big question, but in 15 years, were there any key moments that Stephen mentored you or lessons you took from him?
0: I, I, I know I learned a lot of them in hindsight. Um, Stephen is not a mentor who is going to take an enormous amount of time to explain to you how to do something. And in fact, the several times I asked him, his loving, dear response to me was, you'll figure it out. He never like dictated, well, you go up to the corner and you make a right and you, you know, he was just like, you'll figure it out. And I learned from watching him. Because he's he's not only a phenomenal filmmaker, uh, director. He's not only a phenomenal director. He's also an incredibly talented producer and writer. I swear to God, you could lock the man in a soundstage by himself with the equipment, and he would come out with an incredible movie. He is. Uh, he was just born to do it, and um, an incredible storyteller. So, if I had to take. You know, I I think probably there's things that come into my mind when, when I'm asked this question, most of my really specific memories are things Kathy Kennedy taught me because Kathy would take the time to turn and, and give you the, the explanation of how to do it and then tell you to go make it your own. But Kathy had a lot of, she's just a good teacher. She's just a teacher by nature. And she, um, she gave me incredibly great advice about Stephen which was do what he don't do what he says do what he means and i have taken that advice across the board in my career with directors because if i do what you say i'm a robot if i do what you mean i'm producing for you because what i'm doing is i am interpreting the why behind what you've told me to do and many times <laughs> I don't need to do what you said. There's something very different that needs to happen for you to get the result that you're after. So it requires, um, you know, it requires you to do some research and talk to different people and have a brain about it and not be robotic. What I learned from Stephen over the years is you don't shoot the whole movie on day one. That can be a really looming Stressful thing during pre-production, and you realize, oh, well, we just have to shoot it one day at a time, you know. And um, I learned the value of pre-production with him. He was by the time I showed up, he was an expert. And Stephen would read a script, and he would come into you, and he would say, "Okay, I want to shoot this one in so and so days. I want it to be this budget," and he would walk out. And that's what we would do. We would back into that number. We would shoot it in that amount of days. And that was the movie. Now, I didn't know the brilliance of that when I was in the middle of it and how difficult it is to actually do that unless you're Steven Spielberg. But it made me a really great independent film producer because all you had to do, it made me a good producer because all you got to do If you're the studio and we have this relationship now with Skydance, just give us the number. Give us the number in the days and we will tell you the movie you can have. Now, what was brilliant about Steven is he was actually telling you the movie he wanted. He knew the size he wanted it to be. He knew the scenes where he needed scope. He's a good producer. So you, you would literally go off and budget and craft the movie he was seeing in his head. And he's constantly editing the movie in his head, constantly. But sometimes with the studio, they'll give you a number that doesn't match the script or the movie they want. And it's our job to go back and say, okay, this is the movie that'll buy you. You know, so there is a, there is an extra step when it's not Steven Spielberg giving you the number and the amount of days. But I think that he, I, I, I cannot even begin to tell you how much that man taught me generously taught me by just the intimacy of the 15 year experience and being and the complete throw you in the deep end and say, you'll figure it out. Mentorship. You know, I I was 24 years old when we went over to make Schindler's list. He gave me way too much responsibility. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no clue. And I, I literally—the only thing I can give, the only way I can give words to it—is I saw things that were gonna fall through and not be ready on the day unless I engaged in them and made sure they were. And I had the warmth and camaraderie and personal relationship with him that I could run over to him like that and grab him and say da 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 da, and he'd be like da da da, okay, good, run, run, run. You know that in and of itself is everything, you know? So it, um, and just that ability to communicate with him. It was lovely to come up as his assistant too, because I, I knew him. We, I worked for him for a year before we were on a set together and I knew him. So when he turned and spoke, I, they used to tease me that I spoke Spielberg because he would give, you know, his, his, direction and walk away and they'd be start doing things and I'd be like guys that's not what he wanted at all what are you doing do this 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 you know so so it was I I couldn't even I I learned everything I learned everything from him and Kathy and Frank everything
1: that's incredible you you mentioned Schindler's this there on that I know it was a a project very close to uh, Stephen's heart and to my knowledge he didn't even take a salary on it calling it blood money Did you feel, as someone who was really there, the weight of the story on history on the project to some extent?
0: We definitely knew that we were doing something different that we hoped would be important. I never really thought beyond the. uh, It's interesting because I'm sort of coming to this conclusion as I'm talking to you. I don't recall thinking beyond him. I knew it was important for him, I knew the childhood he had had. I knew the struggles that he had. I knew his family and his, you know, his ex-wife and his wife and the kids. And I was so immersed in the evolution of their journey because I was just close to it that this was a really good thing we were doing, you know. So it felt like the right place to be at the right time giving our energy to the right thing. And we were all going to come out the other side of it really proud of ourselves. And that, honestly, I just didn't think beyond that. And I, you know, in his way, I don't think he really did either. You know, he stuck with it being black and white. He knew it was making this movie was a fear he needed to conquer. And um, he tried to divorce himself from his bag of tricks cinematically, you know, he he got in there and got rid of the Dolly track and, you know, literally just tried to channel something different. And um and it was great to watch, you know, and uh I got it I I loved going to set every day. I I got excited to see what we were gonna do. It was such an all an alternative experience, you know. We were living in a world of black and white over there. It was, and we were so far from Hollywood and Kathy and Frank had left Amblin. So he was leaning on me in a really, you know, I was going to say dramatic. It didn't feel dramatic, but I was the one there helping him make the movie, you know, and Jerry Molin and Bronco Lustig, incredibly experienced producers, who were so generous to me and loved that they had me there. Cause I had the relationship with Steven that I did. So it all just, I felt very valuable. I felt very valuable in that process. And um, when it did what it did, you know, I'll, I just will tell you what I always say. The making of it was amazing. I i have never been the filmmaker who I couldn't even tell you what any of these, what they grossed or, you know, how many people went or what the sale, was. I, my mind is so on how we got it made and what the experience was working with the people making it. That's why I do it.
1: Speaking of the making of things to take a bit of a segue, another true story you worked on was Saving Private Ryan. And there are certain things that I have to ask her and guests who come on. And I have to ask you, Bonnie Curtis, were you on that beach? And please tell us more if you were.
0: I was really on that beat. There's so many stories about that those days because it was a sequence that we shot over a period of a couple of weeks. And um, again, I am who I am. What my brain does is it goes to how we planned it, you know, the planning of it, because that was... um, the line I love to say is: So you go into the office on a Monday, and the the note on your desk is "Recreate the D-Day invasion." <laughs> and so you're like, "What?" Huh? <laughs> oh. So we, um, Ian Bryce, incredibly talented producer, who I also learned, he was another incredibly generous mentor to me. He just let me follow him around that entire movie. I learned so much from Ian. He was, uh you know, we were trying to figure out how to do this. And when you're when you're working with Steven Spielberg, you're always going to reach for the the gold from the get go. Like we are the people who asked if we could shoot at Normandy. Like that's who we are. That's just us. You know, we want to be in the actual Supreme Court. We want to be in the actual Auschwitz Birkenau. You know, we want to be where it, where it happened and. I don't think they laughed at me, but they definitely were like, uh, it's a national memorial, you know, like we're not going to let a film crew come here. So we started to scout and uh and this, there was this coastline in Ireland uh outside of a town called Wexford that that had a similar topography to the Normandy beach. And so we started to figure out, you know, that was one accomplishment and then we, you know, you start to look at films that have battle scenes that you respect and want to try to replicate. And the movie that had just come out was Braveheart. And there was a lot of bodies and a lot of chaos and, and capable chaos. You know, it was a very well done battle. And um, we hired a gentleman named Kevin Delanoy who had put together that Experience for filming, and one of the things that they had done was bring in the Irish Army. You know, a lot of trained soldiers who weren't currently fighting, who could be the bodies on the beach for you. And um, so we just all those things started to fall into place. And um, we had been trying to get Stephen to storyboard the sequence for quite a while, and he w- he was. Very frustrated about trying to do that. I, I, you know, it's D-Day. Where do you even begin? And, you know, there's a fascinating thing that happens when you're working with Steven, because I, it is my belief that none of what he's doing is conscious. He's not purposely not storyboarding to get the result that we end up getting. I don't think he's logically thinking, hey, if I don't storyboard, it'll be such a chaotic disaster that it'll be great. I don't think that that's what happens. I think he just organically is a genius. (laughs) It's like, there's no, it just, it's, it's just the presence of genius constantly. It's not, it's not pre-thought logistically strategized genius. It's just genius. It's just authentically. I don't, I, I, uh, no, I'm not storyboarding. No. Why? I don't know. You know, It just, he's just not. So we even had one of the military guys put some boards together and Stephen rejected them. He's like, I don't know. I, I, yeah. So we all sort of show up the first day and we've got, you know, we've got the bodies, we've got the special effects, you know, stuff rigged. We've got a few cameramen. We're just going to kind of see what happens. And, um, And they've done some rehearsals and people have run up and stuff like that. But my memory is, and I think every human being you talk to will have a different version of what I'm about to tell you, but this is my memory. My memory is, because it was a high stress, action packed series of days. And I think everybody had a different window into it. So the truth will lie somewhere in between. But I recall not getting one foot of usable film on day one. That's my memory of it. And that we all left incredibly frustrated. And um, Stephen, super, Stephen super frustrated everybody. Like it had just not been a good day. And I was walking him to the car and he just was not, he was very upset. And um, and I was trying to make him feel okay and, you know, it'll be better tomorrow I don't recall what made me think of it, but when when he shut the door in the car, it hit me he had been he did not want to organize this because it was supposed to be chaos, but we had to organize it. there was no giving him what he wanted if we didn't organize it and I think if I had been a better, more experienced producer, I would have figured this out ahead of time, but I wasted a day he he needed to still feel like it was chaos. We had to trick him. He needed to direct chaos. We needed to plan. So I got Ian Bryce on the radio and I said, can we get all the department heads together? I think I have an idea. And he said, great. And so we all get together and I said, we need to give Steven a list. Of gags, you know, this guy's leg blows off, this guy's head, this, you know, we had we had like 17 or 21. I can't remember what the number was, but Neil Corbold, our special effects guy, had all these things. But he only had he'd have it rigged for a specific thing, and we'd shoot that and then he'd rig this. I'm like, they all have to be rigged all the time. And they have to be rigged like seven or eight deep, like. It's got to be like a video game, like you just rig them all, which was money. They, they call me Spindy wendy for a reason. We had to throw money at it. We had to throw like $300,000. Neil's like, I need money, but bring it. And so he rigged, I don't remember the exact number, but like 17 gags, six or seven deep. And then we made a laminate, I made a laminated list for Steven so that he could sit at the monitor and he could say, give me a one, a six, and a 10. And then we wouldn't tell the cameraman where that was. Now, I only come up with the with the video game idea. That's all I offer. The Everything else I'm about to tell you is other people start playing off of it. And they're like, and we won't tell the cameraman because then they're combat cameramen. Like they don't know where the gag is. And then what Steven did, and I met Steven at the car the next morning and I said, we've rigged these seven deep. You just say on each shot what you want. And he literally, he grabbed hold of me and was like, oh my God, (laughs) great idea. So he goes to the monitor and uh, another, uh, Ian had brought in two more cameramen. So we had five cameras. So you got five cameras, you've got all this stuff rigged. None of the cameramen know what's going to happen on any shot because we've got this code list. And on each take, and stephen has got his bullhorn and he's yelling out what he wants and it happens. And then Stephen adds this element where he starts calling the cameraman after each take. He calls the cameraman over to the monitor to stand around him. They play back the takes and he and he votes on who won. Wow. Then then they start to figure out what the numbers are. Like the fourth or fifth time when he yells out a 3, that's where that guy and they start competing to get the shot. So they're bumping into each other. These guys are falling over, stuff's splashing. And Yanush is there. Yanush Kaminski, our DP, is like, seems like, oh no, we got blood on the lens. Oh no, we got water. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Keep it, keep it, keep it. We want that. And he had his, you know, the shaker on the camera and all. So it was literally, we started to get great footage. And it's um you know, sometimes I just watch that sequence just to remember. Oh, I remember getting that shot. Oh, I remember getting that shot. And, uh, and then Michael Kahn, give me a break, you know, friggin' genius. But it was, um, and John Williams, but it was uh, a true communal effort. And, um, and I wouldn't have known. I was the human being that knew that because of how well I knew him. Kathy probably would have figured it out too. She'd been with him so close to him for so long. But, oh, we have to create, we have to plan, but it has to feel like chaos to him. And then it just, it was fun. Then it just got fun. And those cameramen were competing to win the shot with Steven. So that day ended much much more constructively. And then we just continued to improve and improve and improve our process.
1: That answer was everything I wanted and more. To change gear a little bit, obviously you were doing all these huge studio pictures with Stephen and you decided to take a different route and you were going now towards more independent movies. One of the first ones of which I can see was called The Chum Scrubber. And I'm particularly interested in this because I'd love to know why did you change your path? And also I noticed in the list of cast for the chum scrubber who you now work with regularly as I believe something like student number one was none other than David Ellison.
0: I know. Isn't that funny? That's so funny. I thought you were going to say Glenn Close, but David. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um.
0: It's interesting. It's, it's not so much that I changed my path is that I got back on my path. You know, I um had grown up, loving character driven, uh, smaller art house movies there. They were the movies that made me want to make movies. You know, I was not, I was not your blockbuster big tent pole studio girl. Like I was not now I saw everything. I was such a film fan that I saw everything that was out, but I was down at the art house as much as I was at the, you know, at the bigger, you know, studio, cinema theater. And I, um, and so what started to happen to me, and it was two things. It was also the fact that I had started working at Amblin when I was 23. So I'd grown up, you know, and it's, and as much as you love these people that you're working for and with, there's a parent child dynamic that you just, you're, I'm just ready to leave the nest. You know, it was, it was sort of a, they're never going to make smaller movies here. It's not going to happen. And I want to go try to do this on my own and develop material that I want to make. And, you know, so I had to go talk to Stephen about it, which was a very difficult conversation. He was great. I actually went out to his house to have the conversation with him. And um, it helped that Kathy Kennedy had had a very similar conversation with him a few years prior. He was like, oh, you, like Kathy did. And I'm like, yeah, that's, it's actually exactly like that. So he could not have been more generous. Uh, let, let me still keep an office there and literally prep my independent film in one of his buildings. And Stephen doesn't miss a beat. He knew everything that was going on and he would just smile. And then he ended up being a hero for me at the end of the day because I had a distribution deal that was about to fall through. And he got DreamWorks to write a half million dollar check. So, and the CFO was like, what? We don't even do movies like this. What? He's like, I want to do it for Bonnie, do it. So, I mean, you know, thanks, dad. But I had gone around to all the agencies because when you work with someone, like, somebody like Spielberg, you really don't need to know all the agents in town. You, you don't need to know the business because he's Steven Spielberg. So you call actors directly you know, you call writers directly, you know, you don't, the Rolodex is like, you know, everybody in town wants his Rolodex. So it it's just, it's just counterintuitive to a lot of the way the business normally works. And, um, so I've decided, you know what, I'm gonna go around town and meet all the agents. So I literally went to every agency and basically said to them what I had been saying for several years at Amblin, which was like, I need to meet a young Stephen. I need to meet a filmmaker, writer, director, preferably, because those are my favorite films down the line. Um, They're all, they all come out of one mind and get material. And so I just said, I want to meet your young filmmakers. I want to, you know, find that first movie. And so I met I kept a chart and I think I met 65 filmmakers over a period of several months. And, um, and one of the young filmmakers I met, what he had written co-written a script called the chum scrubber, which was a dark comedy, great opportunities for casting, uh, loved the ending and completely removed from anything I'd been involved in for, you know, years and years out in the business so far. And so in line with movies that I would go see as a kid. So I went, Ari Posen was the writer director's name. And I went and met Ari, saw his short film too, which I loved. And it had, I could just tell he knew how to tell a story with a camera. And it also made me laugh. And I, uh, it had a couple of clever beats. There was a wicked sense of humor in it. And so I met him and, uh, it just really liked him because he, he talked about movies. He was a cinephile and, um, And reminded me of Steven in that way. So we went to putting the money together and, you know, I had no idea what I was doing because it is literally completely different from anything you do in studio filmmaking. You know, the way the financing is built, you know, the way you, you get a foreign sales company on board and you back into these numbers and you have to get actors that are of a certain value to meet your budget number, blah, 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 blah. And I just had no experience or relationships. I'd never been to a film festival. Stephen, Stephen never went to film festivals. So it was just this whole part of the business. It was completely fascinating and very foreign to me. And so we sort of stumbled into eventually getting that movie made and getting it out into theaters. Uh, But we, you know, it's like new market was starting to not be around anymore. DreamWorks had come in as an investor, but really didn't release movies like that and so, I mean, it's gotten quite a following since we made it. And I love the movie. And several people showed up, like Rafe Fines. Rafe showed up for me. Yeah. He's like, I'll come. How many days do you need? I think I can give you nine days. And I'm like, we will shoot it in nine days.
1: That makes sense. Cause I was looking at the cast list going, this is a mad cast list for this movie. Yeah. Is this what was happening?
0: Yeah. So I was just calling people and asking them to come help me. Glenn Close, I didn't know Glenn. You know, she had done a cameo in Hook. So I, I'd met her briefly one day, but she came because she just want, there was one part she read, her agent had given her the script. God bless him. A good friend of mine. I, I loved him to death. And, uh, and Glenn loves to work with first time filmmakers like Glenn loves, she's from the theater. She just loves the experience of all of it. So if she sees something in the part, a morsel in the part that she wants to play, Sure, she'll get on a plane and come to LA for four days and meet a bunch of artists and work with a first time filmmaker and see if she can play that moment. It's a great week for her, you know? And so that was just the best. When she came on board, I was just like, you gotta be kidding me. So, and that, I love, Glenn's one of my best friends. I adore her. And we've worked, Julie and I've worked with her four or five times. But um, Albert Knobs, the next movie we made, where Julie and I partnered, Glenn handed me that script on the chum scrubber set. So just that organic thing that happens.
1: Before I finish with my little questionnaire, my quickfire questionnaire, one more question I would love to ask is given that you do have both sides of this brain now, you've done you've done the big write and checks moment and you've also um, gone through the independent world, what would be your advice to, you know, I'm essentially you when you were going into Amblin. So for people similar to me out there who listen to this, What's your perspective on, you know, advice, maybe either production focused or also people who maybe want to be an assistant like you were?
0: I don't think there's, I think there's 73,000 different paths you can take. Um, Mm -hmm. When I first moved out here, I was trying to figure out, okay, what's the way to do this? And by the eighth or ninth conversation i had had, I very quickly assessed that nobody had done it the same way and there were many many different paths and um if you know what your ultimate goal is you know i didn't know i wanted to be a producer that i discovered that i was a producer you know i i found the first couple of sets i was on that what i really loved doing was making sure that everyone was communicating towards the same vision and that the vision was out of the director's brain and everybody understood it. And so everybody was trying to achieve the same thing and then helping them communicate so that you know the same thing is coming. It's everything. And um, directors who learn how to concisely, finitely, and consistently give you their vision and they don't waver, those are your best movies. Because if they're changing their mind every day, or can't make up their mind it's just pardon my french a rat Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so you really you've got to create that and sometimes even if you have a filmmaker that can't make up his mind you certainly have to come up with something decisive to give people so that you can you know make your shoot day and 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 that you'll eventually use what you shoot that day It's, um, I mean, I think the advice I would give people is, uh, don't overthink it because I watch a lot of young people today. They come out here and, you know, they want to be a director or they want to be an actress or they want to be a writer. And I think you have to figure out a way, which is much more doable today than it was 30 years ago. You got to figure out a way to be engaging in that dream that you have in some way, stretching your acting mu- muscles, stretching your writing muscles, stretching your directing muscles, even if you're going out and shooting something on an iPhone or just sitting and scribbling in your journal or, you know, helping a friend with a short film as an actor, getting your foot in the door in any capacity at any company that you respect the work of is also a great thing to be simultaneously doing, you know. Even if you want to be an actor and you get a job as a receptionist at a brand, at a company that has been making a ton of product that you love, just do good work, work, work hard. And when you see that opportunity come up on that film, try to get that job on the film and be on that set, you know, meet that casting director. Or if you want to, you know, get that job in the production office, you know, it's the first couple of jobs don't have to be the job the first couple of jobs need to just be the way that you get in the soup and start to meet people and start to figure out what it is you don't want to do. So I don't like, uh, I'm very turned off by young people who are, have a sense of entitlement, but more than that, honestly, and I really mean this are uh, young people who haven't seen cinema, who haven't studied cinema. And I don't know if I'm a rarity in that, in that way. I actually will deal with entitled pretty well because I'll just tease you out of it. But the, the lack of respect for the history of cinema is fascinating to me. And I I've had young people I've talked to, have asked to go, you know, go see these 10 movies and call me back. Maybe one of them did it, you know, and you're just like, really so actually you don't want to be in film that you you actually don't want to I I know now I know you just want to be famous or you just want to be next to famous people or you know you want to have more people in your Instagram account or whatever the hell is going on but I'm you know show me that you love the love it because there's nothing like sitting with people who love movies as much as you do you know That's what I love about this. That's what I love about the Skydance people, by the way, David Ellison, Don Granger, Dana Goldberg. They love movies so much. We will sit at dinner and just geek out on movies for like three hours. You know, David can quote everything. Don pretty much can too. Dana's the same way. You know, I, I, my, my quoting abilities aren't what they used to be, but just love movies and David Ellison, yeah, he, there was a chapter when he was trying to be an actor. And, um, and I can't remember who at WME, somebody asked Ari and me if he could come do a part. And we were like, sure. David and I never, I, I think David and I had a joke about that at one point. I love David. He, he is, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who've come to this town with money and tried to like you know, establish themselves in some sort of position, but they haven't been willing to do the work. David works harder than any five people I know. We've really enjoyed, I mean, that association with them, which came out of the movie Life, that that's really been wonderful for Julie and me, just because you're working with really good family people who love movies, like Kathy, Stephen and Frank, by the way.
1: To wrap up, i like to do a little quickfire questionnaire which is my own ode to In The Active Studio, which I'm sure you're well-versed in. Oh, yes. So they're just quick fire. So whatever comes into your head, just go with that. The first one you may have kind of already answered. So I'll go with it, but tell me if you want to skip on. Are you ready, Bonnie Curtis? I'm ready. Number one, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given?
0: Don't do what he says, do what he means.
1: Number two, do you have a favourite film?
0: Uh, I have several favourite films. terms of endearment, Broadcast News, Fabulous Baker Boys, Somewhere in Time, and Tootsie. Those are the ones I'll give you.
1: And then the second part of that question is, if our listeners were to watch one of your movies tonight, which one should they watch?
0: Oh, that would be different if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic. I think, uh, I think if you're in the mood for like the pandemic experience, I would watch Life you know, six astronauts trapped on the international space station with a creature. That would be, I think I I just thought of that. That would be pretty funny. But if you, if you want something lighthearted and escapist, I think probably the most, I mean, of course you could watch Jurassic Park for an adventure, but I think probably one of the most escapist sweet movies we've ever done is five to seven, which was a, a romantic comedy we did in New York. Um, that uh, Anton Yelchin started. and It was one of his last movies. But that's a lovely escapist couple of hours to spend.
1: Perfect answer. Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed every day for an early call cool time, if any at all? <laughs>
0: um, I think it, for every movie, it's different. I find my way in very differently. What got me out of bed every morning on uh, this last movie we did, Terminator Dark Fate, was that we were bringing Sarah Connor back. And that, as a cinephile who had loved those movies so much and had completely fallen in love with Linda Hamilton within a matter of minutes, uh, that was literally like the creative reason to get out of bed every morning. What gets me out of bed continually during the long process of filming is the people. You just, you know, the people that you're working with. And if you've hired correctly and, um, you know, and are, are, expending the effort required to do it well, it ends up being a really wonderful people experience.
1: Fantastic. Number four, which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours?
0: Uh, I think it would probably be music involved. I think uh, like music supervisor, I th- that is one of my favorite parts of filmmaking is, is figuring out the source music to put with certain scenes. And I, I definitely would love before I leave this Earth to do some sort of music biopic uh, I've been obsessing lately on all these music documentaries but that's um, I think it would be music yeah for sure.
1: number five if you could work with one person living or dead, who would it be? this is a hard one
0: uh, Jane Fonda yeah that's a, that's actually that's actually easy for me. I you know she's been such a hero to me and such an inspiration to me um, since I was a little kid. So I think if I had an opportunity to work with her, that would be that would be great.
1: Number six, what is a book that everyone should read?
0: What is a book that everyone should read? Uh, you know, the the last thing I read was called uh White Too Long. Uh I think the guy that wrote it's name is Robert Jones. Wait, I have it on my phone. I'll tell you real quick. So all the people that want to go out and read White Too Long can do so. Yeah, Robert Jones. Uh, it's a great book. It's about the history of, uh, racism in this country associated with religion. So it's just a very timely book that I just happened to read. And I've been telling everyone to read it.
1: Very poignant. And finally, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank?
0: My wife, Kim. Uh, the only bummer about an otherwise really great job is the time away from your family. And, uh... That has been a a real challenge. Kim and I've been together twenty two years, and I mean, I bet if I sat down and added up the hours that I have not the weeks, the years that I have not been present in the home with her because of my career, I bet it's fifty percent of that and it it has it and it's only gotten worse because the film business doesn't really happen in Los Angeles anymore. So if you live here, you know, and your kids go to school here and your lives and friends and family are here, you're half the time going overseas. You know, you're going to Canada or you're going to London or you're going to Budapest or you're going to Australia, Atlanta, you know, New York. I I haven't made a movie here in a very, very, very long time. So that's hard. I would definitely
1: thank her. Thank you for that touching answer. And that very sadly brings our time to a close with Bonnie Curtis. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your amazing stories of a very enviable career that I can't believe anyone else would have. Thank you so much for doing this, Bonnie.
0: Thank you. It was great. I really enjoyed talking to you, Mike.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. And of course, any support via our Patreon page or merch is amazing. So if you'd like to help, please do head to redcarpetrookies.com and follow the links. If you'd like regular updates of what's going on, you can also follow Red Carpet Rookies on Instagram and Facebook or RC Rookies Pod on Twitter. Have a great day and we'll see you next time.